welcome to DC EKG with Joe Grogan and uh, Eric Euland. We are distributed by Big Wig Media and Riverside, and we want to thank our sponsor, uh, Survivors for Solutions, fighting for tomorrow's therapies and cures, and all the patients out there who are dependent upon the innovation engine uh, from America's and the world's pharmaceutical industry in order to cure the diseases that they themselves face and that our children and grandchildren will face. Today, we have a very exciting conversation with Victoria Coates. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Victoria's as Eric is as well. She's the former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump. She is currently the VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. She has a tremendous amount of experience and uh, speaking for myself, you know, the, the horrific events in Israel and the Middle East of the last, it's moving so fast, but it was a week, uh, 10 days, uh, October 7th have been um, so fast moving and frankly confusing that I'm, I've been wanting to talk to Victoria just about every day. So I'm so glad that she's here to drop some knowledge on us and explain some things. Victoria, uh, I'm selfishly going to take the first question. So in the last 24 hours, we saw this explosion at the hospital in uh, Gaza and a protest erupting all over the place in the Middle East at the American embassy under assault in more than one location. Um, I would put it as bizarre and confusing coverage across multiple different outlets. What is your... What, what's your takeaway from that? Can you explain what occurred and try and put that into context for people listening to the podcast? Well, Joe, th thank you. And to my good old friend and colleague, Eric, I appreciate very much this this opportunity to join you guys. Uh, this, is, this is a really horrible situation that in many ways sums up uh, what's, what's going on in, in Israel right now because obviously we had the horrific attacks of October 7th uh, thousands of Hamas uh, terrorists swarming into Israel by various uh, various means, tunnels, paragliders. Some came on ships, some came on motorcycles, and Israelis, you know, tortured, detained, taken hostage, beheaded, burned alive. I mean, the as the additional details come out about this, the just sensationally, sensationalistically violent uh, and savage nature of these attacks, I think, really needs to be made clear to folks. This was in no way normal. And Israel has to respond. You know, there's there's no way, you know, with all the goodwill in the world, you could say don't don't respond to to the kinds of very stark images people have seen sometimes of their their loved ones. So, you know, every and so as 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 Israel has started to take action against Gaza to, to date uh, through through airstrikes, although they certainly look like they're preparing a, a, a ground incursion as well. You know, you're you're. Obviously, everyone's concerned about about civilians in Gaza uh, who are put deliberately in harm's way by by Hamas, uh, including in hospitals as well as in schools. So you wind up with a situation, you know, late last night where there are reports of a horrific explosion at, at one of the, the hospitals in Gaza, killing as many as 500 Palestinian civilians. Uh, so so a, a huge strike if strike it was. And then we had uh, very dangerous uh, protests in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Tunisia, where a, uh, where a, uh, a synagogue was sacked and destroyed, and then otherwise focusing on the U.S. embassy. And I don't actually know why our embassies in these locations haven't been evacuated yet. They just started getting non-essential personnel out of Lebanon. But, you know, that's a very dangerous, uh, dangerous situation. And, you know, the president's opening remarks were very critical of Israel. President Macron was very critical of Israel. I think that fanned the flames. We had the president's visit to Jordan canceled by King Abdullah and, uh, and Abu Mazen, the head of the Palestinian Authority. So, you know, a lot of bad stuff seemed to be going on when suddenly the Israelis said, wait, we, we weren't using that kind of weapon in that area at that time. And it has been revealed in the past hours through uh, both intercepted calls and, and uh, video feeds that this was the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, 
themselves. And they apparently are not the most competent people in the world, but they're pretty nasty. And they shot off a rocket and it malfunctioned. They hit their own hospital, killed their own people. And for them, that's acceptable collateral damage. But for the rest of the world, this should be shocking. Uh, but but the president had already kind of opened the door to, you know, to criticism of Israel, to, to accepting the Hamas narrative that this was Israel. And I thought it really put a pall over his visit to, to Tel Aviv today. Victoria, I completely agree. And just wondering, given all your experience and the work you've done, why do you think it was that so quickly people believed the Israelis would have done something so heinous in the face of the pogrom they just suffered? And why, even as the facts have come out and will continue to come out in the next several days, it's so hard for agitators, protesters, and opponents of the United States to give up their their myth in the face of the fact that Israel did not do this. Uh, and the Palestinians and Islamic Jihad itself is responsible for death and destruction at the hospital. Now, I mean, Eric, I think, A, pogrom is the right word for what happened on October 7th. I think we should be using it more. And, and, and B, because we have so many useful idiots, and it's both in Europe and the United States, but I'm more concerned about the United States. And these are folks in the media. These are folks in academia. And most shamefully, these are folks, multiple folks in the U.S. Congress, uh, all of whom are some of the most media savvy. So you have both the people who are teaching our children and higher education. You have the people who are informing the population. And you're, you have people who are then manipulating the media, in the case of these Congress people, uh, all of whom are pushing this narrative that anything that Hamas does is justified. Nothing Israel does is justified. Israel wants to commit this kind of atrocity against civilians, uh, and we should not be surprised when it happens. And I think having that all get exposed over the course of the last 10 days actually could be useful. You know, we're starting to see a lot of very high-profile uh, trustees and donors to these institutions, Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, for example, either resign uh, or announce that they're going to cut off donations until until the problem is fixed. And I think that actually can be cleansing and good in the United States uh, and, and hopefully make this more balanced. So at least folks will, will say, you know, yes, there are early reports, but early reports are frequently wrong. So let's not freak out. Let's let's wait and then be very receptive when, you know, fact based analysis uh is, is presented. But as far as I know, Congressman Talib's tweet from last night decrying the Israelis for targeting uh, Palestinian civilians is still up. It was an hour ago. I agree. And actually, I just walked through her protest in front of the Capitol prior to uh, hopping on to the podcast with you. And she was still busy insinuating that somehow, in some way, the truth was not the truth. You use a great term from uh, Cold War days, useful idiot, which was a term of art in relation to so many people in the West who went along with what the Soviets did. And certainly there are a lot of people reacting in ignorance, both in particular to what happened at the hospital, but more generally in terms of, of Israel and the situation there. But there's still, just like back then, seemed to be an agenda behind all this, just as back then a lot of useful idiots were used and directed by the Soviet Union. Now there seem to be a very pernicious cohort of people out there seems to be dedicated to the destruction of Israel. What do you think, in addition to what's going on with trustees and, and other people, as they kind of evaluate this serious rot underneath uh, and inside our society that's going on that leads to moments like this, what else is it that you think should be done here um, in the face of somewhere people pushing this agenda forward? Oh, it's it's not somewhere. It's in Tehran. Uh, and this is all being fueled by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And want to be careful and make clear to your listeners that I'm not talking about the people of Iran in any way who hate their government in many ways excellent for excellent reasons more more than we might hate hate these guys. But but they're the ones who are genocidally anti-Semitic. They spend their time chanting death to Israel, oh, and death to America. They don't like us either. And they mean it. I mean, they want to kill Jews. They want to kill Americans. And I think the fact that we had 30 Americans killed and some number taken hostage 
in this in this attack, they didn't ask for anybody's passport. They didn't say if you're not Israeli, you can go. If if you were caught in Israel, you were fair game. And I think that that is a very sobering reality. And we have to see that Iran is funding, training, equipping, and then ultimately directing this kind of attack. And you know they are the ones who are manipulating uh, the the so-called useful idiots and using them to somehow make their I, I think radical and shocking agenda kind of chic. You know, it's like protest chic. I, you know, it, the, the Israelis are part of the oppressors, so I'm going to support the Palestinians and, you know, wear the Palestinian flag and 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 not have any. Most of them don't have any idea what this all actually stands for. What the Hamas charter says about Israel, uh, and they're basically just carrying water for for the Iranian regime. And the charter calls for the complete extinction of Israel, yes. right? So, uh, Joe, sorry, just one last question in this area, and then uh, I, I yield. Uh, but Victoria, to your point, shining spotlight on Iran, why is there such an obsession, almost uh, you know, criminal in nature, in terms of this effort by Democrats in the, the Biden administration to resurrect uh, the previously flawed and what uh, President Trump pulled out of the joint uh, nuclear deal with Iran, as well as this you know, constant uh, barrage of initiatives bending over backwards, trying to usher Iran back into uh, the rest of the community of nations when Democrats are in charge. What really drives that? You know, I just I think it, it comes down to a fundamentally different worldview, uh, and and I understand this to have been President Obama's worldview coming into office in in two thousand and nine. That the you know looking at the Middle East, it was a mess as usual, and his feeling was that that the decades of building up and enriching not enriching but building up and building up the prosperity of and the security of of Israel had not brought peace to the Middle East, and that he felt that perhaps there was uh, an opening with Iran to create a different power st structure uh, within the region that would be more balanced. And the United States would not be seen as the invader or the oppressor anymore. Uh, and that, that maybe these people were reasonable and maybe we could talk to them. Uh, now, you know, I don't agree with that, but I can understand that in 2008 you know, that that might be your approach. But the problem is that, you know, we went through all the crazy gyrations to get to the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the original Obama nuclear deal, you know, jammed that thing in, into implementation, not by passing it as a treaty or through both houses of Congress as a law, but through the United Nations Security Council, which last time I looked was not binding in the United States, uh, which is why President Trump was able to get out of it uh, mercifully. But, you know, they, they, the going theory then was, you know, if we provide them with a lot of resources, engage with them economically and diplomatically, they will become more domesticated, I guess. Uh, they won't pursue nuclear weapons and we'll have this magical new Middle East that we envision. And so this happened. And then we had a couple of years to watch it. And what we saw as the money started flowing back into Iran, primarily through oil sales, was that dollar for dollar going into their military, going into the infamous Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is both the Quds Force and the IRGC are now designated foreign terrorist organizations. And they were lapping all of that up. None of it went to the Iranian people. None of it uh, went to the modernization the country so desperately needs. All of it went to terrorist mayhem. And so we saw that reverse during the Trump administration when we we imposed the most strict uh, regimen of unilateral sanctions ever ever imposed and, and really took that economy to its knees. Uh, and, and we saw terrorism in the region decrease. We didn't have this kind of spectacular uh, attack. Then the Biden, so to me, that was proof that this was a bad idea. So then we tried the thesis again under Biden, and he poured a billion dollars into the Palestinian Authority and the UN organizations that support the Palestinians, and then also relaxed the sanctions, didn't enforce them on the Iranians. So they went from about 300,000 barrels a day to 3 million barrels a day. Oh, a million and more, uh, a million and more to China. It high, heavily discounted price uh, every day that that oil is flowing. And those tens of billions of dollars, once again, did not go 
to the Iranian people and what they need, it went to fattening back up Hezbollah and Hamas, and this is the result. So why you would try that a third time is a complete mystery to me, because we, we know uh, now what, what that leads to. And you can't reason with these people, and there's not a good deal to be had. And you know that that is maybe unfortunate for the people who've been peddling this for more than a decade, but you know, I, I, I can't afford to have policymakers guided by what's so obviously a fallacy. Before uh, we talk a little bit about how this might be realigning geopolitics, can you just talk about uh, if you're if you're comfortable with it, some of the characters in the Biden administration that have been driving this policy? Some people, they're veterans of the Obama administration, and you mentioned their worldview, but they seem impervious to facts. I mean, we saw across the policy areas that when this team came in, they knee-jerk reversed all sorts of positions, uh, regardless of data. And Biden just frequently, just recently came out and said, oh, I guess we do need a wall. Or, or Mayorkas came out and said, I guess we do need a wall after all, after they had sold this thing as scrap, all the equipment and everything. Um, do you have a uh, do you have an opinion that you're comfortable with about any of the individuals that are driving this policy? And are any of them, frankly, uh, are any of them anti-Semitic? I mean, is that driving some of it too? Well, I'll, I'll try to keep this PG or at least PG thirteen because uh, I do I do have views on these people uh, and some fairly strong ones. And and it's the same group of characters. They've shuffled the the chairs on the Titanic, but uh, you know the the sort of key figures remain. People like John Kerry, who was Secretary of State for the JCPOA negotiations. People like Rob Malley, who was a special assistant to him, also on the Obama NSC, uh, and our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. All of these people were involved. And what's been really interesting in recent weeks is we've had uh, sort of collaborative reporting from a couple of different outfits uh, about a... Iranian sort of public relations initiative that was kicked off around 2012 when those original negotiations started called the Iran Experts uh, Initiative. And what uh, what the purpose of that was, was to find about a half dozen uh, American-Iranian dual citizen sort of influencers, not, not like a TikTok influencer, but, you know, an opinion maker, uh, somebody scholar, somebody goes to lots of conferences, and loop them in with the Iranian foreign ministry. And I have always asked why the Iranian foreign ministry isn't also a designated terrorist group for this sort of activity, but so far I haven't gotten an affirmative answer yet. But the Iran Initiatives Group uh, deployed to Washington, and a number of them started working uh, for, for Rob Malley. And uh, he tried to take, I think, three of them with him when he went into the Biden administration Two uh, didn't pass their security uh, uh, background checks, so they stayed at the International Crisis Group, which is a think tank that that Mali headed. And but the others, uh, such as Ariane Talatabai, who is still at the Department of Defense, went with them and got security clearances and were influencing the formation of U.S. Iran policy. While this reporting revealed they they were in close contact with the. Uh, Iranian government, exchanging emails, asking for background on papers. You know, Azi Vali uh, saying directly to the foreign minister Zarif, you know, I am an Iranian. I will do what I need to do to help you. So you had from within these people influencing our, you know, our policymakers and spreading the views of the Iranian government. And so not surprisingly, those views were favorable to the Iranian government, and they were presented as reasonable, and they were presented as somebody you could deal with, and their positions on nuclear things were understandable and really just. Uh, and so, you know, this is how it's crept, crept in, and that the fact that this woman is still at the Department of Defense, it was announced today she's keeping her security clearance, even after all of this was revealed. You know, it's really it's really extraordinary to me that they, they will just soldier on with this obsession with Iran and not listen, not listen to reason and not adjust course. So one thing um, with your previous comments about this obsession with re 
energizing the Obama administration's outreach to Iran and trying to reset. It seems like maybe uh, Vladimir Putin ripped the page out of that book. Um, one of the most interesting things to me anyway, and maybe alarming is, and maybe you can disabuse me of this, but it seems like uh, Putin had uh, engaged in outreach with the Israeli government before, tried to play both sides against each other, had been engaged in Iran, but he's really seems to have, but, but had, you know, had pretty good relationships with Israel on a number of different issues. There were a lot of exchanges, face-to-face -face meetings and things like that. And now he seems to have totally flipped and he's in bed with the Iranians and he's outflanked us and outflanked the Obama-Biden team that was so focused on Iran. He watched it and he made this made this move here and now he's aligned with Iran and he has the inroads that these guys wanted. Is that a childish way of looking at it, a simplistic way of looking at it, or what do you think? No, not at all. And I think there is a, a very dark and devious role that Russia's playing here. And 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 you're absolutely right. There the Israelis have historically tried to be something of a mediator between the Russians and the Americans, you know, based on the fact that there are a lot of, of ethnic Russian Israelis, uh, but there are even more Israelis that hold dual U.S.-American passports, which is something I would always point out when the Russians would make this claim. And, you know, we did meet with, with them, uh, with then National Security Advisor Bolton. Uh, I was in Jerusalem in June of, of 2019 uh, when we met with the Russian National Security Advisor Patrushev and Prime, and Prime Minister Netanyahu to try to come to some common ground on counterterrorism and, and Syria. And it was very obvious from the beginning of the meeting that the Russians hadn't come with anything but wanting a photo op. And, you know, the Israelis were very frustrated, but at this point they know perfectly well. And it, this has been exposed in recent days when both the Russians and the Chinese have been saying very unhelpful things. But on top of that, the Russians are doing business with the Iranians. Certainly the bulk of what's just happened was financed by the Chinese through the oil sales, but they're also shipping tens of thousands of killer drones to Russia with impunity. And the Wall Street Journal published over the summer the names of the ships that they're using and the trajectories through the Black Sea. So if the Biden administration wanted to disrupt this activity, they could, but they keep letting them go because they have to have the Russians in Vienna playing interlocutor with the Iranians, that the, the chief negotiator is is a Russian diplomat who's running back and forth between the Iranian hotel and the and the American so hotel. Wait, wait, Victoria. Yeah. Because I'm not I have an article about it, so I, I right. can actually prove you it. Gotta, you gotta flesh this out and then I'm gonna shut up and let Yulin go because he's vibrating to jump in with chime in with other questions. But I a lot of people don't quite get this. So we're in this major conflict with Russia right now around Ukraine and it, it the Russians are still mediating the Iran nuclear deal negotiation in Vienna uh, between the United States and and Iran. Yes. And so if, if you're interested in this, if you Google my name in the Daily Mail, uh, I have a long piece about about how this this was structured and it still goes on. And so that's why I think, among other reasons, the Biden administration has not been serious about the way it's prosecuted the war in Ukraine, because they know they need the Russians. So they're going to let these drones get through. They're going to let the drones give the stuff that blow up, rather, the stuff that U.S. taxpayers are funding because they, they want to keep pursuing this deal. And so you've got all of these conflicting policies being pursued, and none of them ultimately can be successful because they're not, they're not coordinated. They're not in concert with each other. So that seems to point up a very significant problem. If you're in, inconsistent internally and you're sending out all sorts of messages externally that aren't consistent with each other, then in addition to flawed assumptions about how to, how to deal with the world, we can't even execute well. In a world like that, given your experience, and as you say, um, you, you spent a lot of time overseas, what is it that our foreign partners, as well as our foreign, foreign opponents, really think about us when they're comparing notes with each other about how well we're doing and whether or not to pay attention to us, much less work with us as we bring significant issues straightforward to them? No, I, th I think the main response right now is, is confusion and concern. 
And that comes from both friends and, and foes. Uh, you know, my foreign partners and interlocutors keep saying to me, what are you doing? And I keep saying, I'm not doing it. Uh, you can't ask me to explain it because it is it is so confusing. And on one hand, the hand, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is a pariah. And on the other hand, he's going to get a fist bump. And you know, so you're sort of ping-ponging back and forth. And so, you know, if you take our biggest challenge, which would be China, you know, on the one hand, you have this parade of sycophantic uh, cabinet officials from the you know, Secretary of State to the Secretary of Treasury to the Secretary of Commerce visiting Beijing over the summer. Uh, and then you have the president engaging in some fairly uh, startling rhetoric about, you know, yes, we would defend Taiwan. You know, yes, Taiwan will be independent, which is a, a deviation from from sort of the established rhetoric. And so, you know, China's looking at this saying, what, well, what is it? And I think I think the problem they find themselves in with China, which is illustrative for the Iran file as well, is on the one hand, they know that China polls about 80% negative with the American people. So that's a bad issue to be on the wrong side of. So the president wants to sound tough. But the problem he faces is he has declared climate the greater national security threat to the United States. They will say, yes, China's a problem, but climate's a bigger problem. And if that's how you're racking and stacking your priorities and climate's the biggest thing, then they've got to get to their, I think, untenable goal of the United States being carbon neutral by 2035. And to get there, they have to have the cheap Chinese stuff. They need the Commerce Secretary going over there and figuring out how we keep that trade flowing, even as Congress tries to take action to cut it off, because they can't make that stuff here at home at a, at a price that, that would be viable to get to their transition. Uh, and, you know, then if you've got to get to global net zero by 2050, which is the Paris target, then you have to make a deal with China, which means you can't get in a fight with China because you, you have to tempt them to do something I think they are exceedingly unlikely to do, which is, you know, come to some kind of honest arrangement to start reducing rather than increasing their emissions, which they haven't done. So, so you know, they wind up in these in these situations where they have the politics, and then they have what they have aspirationally declared they're going to do, and and the two just don't don't lash up, and and then everybody is confused because the messaging isn't consistent, the goals aren't clear, and you wind up in a situation where in 2021 we had Afghanistan, 22 we have Ukraine, 23 we have Israel. And you know we all know what might be on the list for 24. Well, can you can you can you speculate on that for a second? Because at least from my own perspective, three weeks ago, if you would have said, "Well, what's next after Ukraine?" Uh, the conversation, you know, around the ta dinner tables or at the bar was Taiwan, something in Asia. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear a lot of people worried about the Middle East blowing up to the extent that it has starting on October 7th. Is it your, one, were you, were you worried about the Middle East? And two, is it still, are you worried about Taiwan being the next thing? Or is it something, are we gonna get surprised by it seems like this coordination that that's revealing itself between the Iranians, the Chinese and the Russians? Yeah, and I, I would always go back to Secretary Rumsfeld's uh, a confirmation hearing in, I believe it was the first week of January of 2001, in which Afghanistan was not mentioned. So, you know, anything, things can come out of, you know, they shouldn't come out of the blue, but they can come out of the blue. So that's, that is possible. I think most people who work on the Middle East are usually worried about it in one way or the other. And, you know, I think, you know, two weeks ago, everybody was talking about peace. And, you know, you had extraordinary interviews by both the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the Prime Minister of Israel saying in public, yep, we're getting there. And, you know, I would make the humble claim that this was building on the work that, that we did in the Trump administration that resulted in the original Abraham Accords, but certainly a wonderful development just for humanity. How good for humanity would this be if we could get to this peace deal? It would be great. And that clearly triggered the Iranians. But important to realize the planning for this attack started two years ago. It started when the money started flowing ago, again. So in many ways, it was inevitable that it was going to be triggered at some point. But I think that's what 
triggered this timing because the I think the goal is, and this is very much in China's interests, and I don't think at this point either Putin or Iran do anything without an okay from Beijing, is they want to exhaust the United States. And then they want to exhaust our strong allies. I think they're laughing their way to the bank about how little Europe has done to support Ukraine and how Biden and the congressional Democrats are tying themselves in knots to make the United States the primary funder of that war going on in Europe when they know if something happens to Israel, are the Europeans going to help? They are not. It's going to be Israel and the United States or Israel alone. Are the Europeans going to help in Taiwan? They will not. They have said they won't. And we do have some allies who are ponying up who can do so at scale like Japan and South Korea. But if we if we remain the primary donor to Ukraine, we have to be the primary donor to uh, Israel. That's already going to be you know, a, a serious balancing act. And if you add to that another commitment to Taiwan, you know, then we're really straining at the seams and we haven't planned this strategically. You know, we have not invested in the, you know, industrial base and the resupply chain that we, we would need in the event of this uh, eventuality and having, you know, now seeing the shoe drop in the Middle East, we have to be concerned about it for, for Asia. So when it comes to, to Asia, and thank you very much for that, uh, it seems to me the old uh, theory of triangle diplomacy with uh, the Soviet Union and Russia and China was always to make sure those other two points of the triangle weren't working against us. Now they are. In addition, you know, I've seen a spate of stories in the past few months about how China is having significant internal problems. Probably they are. But just in relation to your last point, where do we go in the next few years? What are some of the early moves we need to take in the international arena in order to deal with the big problems that, that Team Biden are creating for the United States? You know, for those of us who, who don't see a lot of hope for constructive change out of the Biden administration, pointing out these just very clear differences of policy on immigration, on energy, on China, you know, why it is not unpatriotic to have concerns about what what Biden's doing in Ukraine, what you could expect from a conservative administration, you know, that has to be a, a top, top priority. And, you know, it's in terms of what I would hope to be doing over the next couple of years, I think what you point out about China is so critical. They are, they are in a heap of trouble over there. And the Russians are not far behind. And their first problem is demographics. They both have a horrible demographic problem. And most people are aware of Russia's, and it's bad. But what China has done to itself with the one-child policy, you know, which is just really starting to manifest itself, it's too late for them to change it. They're going to lose half their population by the end of the century. I mean, an unbelievable attrition of what had been the world's most populous nation, and you know, losing this enormous workforce on which they've depended. And one wonders, you know, what kind of havoc that's going to work when you have an already uh, sort of weakened financial system. So if one were interested in preventing a conflict with China and not having a confrontation in the South China Sea, I mean, spend all day every day making their lives miserable through ways big and small and, you know, restore deterrence against them so they're scared to act. And then in a way it becomes a waiting game. And why don't we, while we're doing that, get very well lashed up with the country that is going to be the most populous on the uh, on the planet, if it isn't already, which is India, which is democratic, which is inclined to be friendly to the United States. Uh, but and how do we help them become a you know a mature, fully developed industrial power who could be just a huge help to us? Same thing with Russia. Why aren't we sanctioning the bejesus out of them? Why aren't we? pushing them to the brink of economic collapse in an effort to get him to the negotiating table in a weak state and get the Ukrainians there in a strengthened state. And sadly, it comes back to the climate issue. The uh, Biden people have said they want the Russian product on the market because they don't want to produce it here at home and they don't want high energy prices before the election in, in 24. So again, they're stuck. Uh, you know, if they produce it here at home, they will lose their environmental base. And if they, you know, actually take strong action against Russia, then you won't you won't have the product on the market. 
So, you know, I think those kinds of contrasts are really what we need to spend the next year drawing, and that's really our charge uh, as heritage. Victoria, what um, can you diagnose this schizophrenia? You, you, well, let's talk about your career for one second. You started, you mentioned Don Rumsfeld. You worked for Rumsfeld at one point, correct? Mm-hmm. And um, how, how long did you work for Rumsfeld? I was with Rumsfeld from 2007 to 2011, and we were working on his book, uh, Known and Unknown, which I referred to as my second PhD, basically in, in U.S. national security policy, because I was his archivist and director of research. And and if you follow his career, and, and I know we don't have another hour to spend discussing the, the fascinating uh, history of Donald Rumsfeld, but... You know, he did it from the Congress. He did it from the White House for Nixon as ambassador to NATO, chief of staff, secretary of defense, a special envoy for Reagan on a couple of projects, did some presidential commissions for uh, Bill Clinton. So he was bipartisan. He would be horrified and shocked to hear me say that. And then, you know, secretary of defense again for for Reagan, So I mean, for, for Bush, rather. So you could disagree or you know, agree with various decisions that he made, but you can't argue with the fact that he's seen this from every single angle. And so that was incredibly informative. And then went to work briefly for uh, Governor Perry and then uh, for, for Senator Cruz from 2013 to 2016. Okay, and then uh, you joined- Then the White House with Eric. Right, and then you jump, you jump into the White House. Um, can you- I mean, as a student of this and also a practitioner going on your own memory, what in the name of God is going on with their policy process that they are not, are they, are they just embracing schizophrenia or, or is nobody running the ship? Do they, is somebody in, in E-Wing having a discussion around climate change and they're not talking about what the hell's going on in Ukraine and the, the, the money and the flow of the drones on the ship. I mean, what is happening? Who is running the show and how can you account for such a discombobulated policy process? Recognizing, you know, policy processes are hard and we've all played a role in screw ups or discombobulation, but this seems to be a big one. Yeah, Joe, I think I'd embrace the and there. I think, I think it's all of the above is is going on here and and sure yeah everybody makes mistakes and has problems and and screw-ups but this is this systemic and it seems to be throughout all the departments and agencies and i i have to think that it goes to the top and you know i'm not a medical doctor i have a phd in art history so i shouldn't be diagnosing anybody's mental state but just watching the president today in tel aviv it it was it was almost hard to watch. You know, he was clearly exhausted from the flight. Uh, his wor- speech was very halting and slow. It, you know, his words were slurring, and everybody can see that. And you know, he is not prosecuting his you know daily schedule with the the rigor that I think any of our presidents of recent mem- memory have of both party. You know, all of whom were very engaged, uh, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, on various topics. And, you know, working very, very hard. And clearly he can't. And, you know, for an administration really to hum along, you know, yes, it's going to be the cabinet secretaries. It's going to be coordination with the career bureaucracy. May the good Lord love them. And but it has to come from the top. It has to be directed by the president and have, you know, his mark on it. And it just seems to me that that's not there. I don't know if it ever was. For Biden, but certainly over the last two years, certainly since Afghanistan, he seems very diminished and and lacking in in focus. And the only thing he really seems to care about is yelling at Republicans and conservatives for for you know not realizing how wonderful his presidency is. But he certainly seems a whole lot angrier with half the American population than he is with the Chinese, the Russians, or the Iranians. So a hell of a backdrop against which to try to prosecute national security, defense, and foreign policy, and as well, plenty of challenges domestically, too. Um, As we kind of deal with the next at least 15, 16, 18 months, um, you know, we obviously have these big challenges already. We've got other areas of the world where there are significant problems constantly. uh, Burning brighter, Nicaragua is a great one. 
a big challenge in our hemisphere, what's going on in Venezuela, uh, Africa, which could be such a powerful partner to us and the West uh, and the rest of the 21st century, where it appears there's just a high level of inattention in a world where, again, the president isn't, for whatever reason, really, really participatory here. Do we anticipate that we're just going to be reactive? Is this basically it? The best best we've already seen is kind of in the rearview mirror of his first year or so. Uh, and I put best in quotes. Um, <laughs> and all we're going to do is just going to kind of have to terribly uh, and unfortunately grin and bear it uh, until a conservative uh, replaces him in the White House. Well, we do have, you know, we do have the majority in the House, and I realize they're in something of disarray today, uh, but that that is a lever of power. And I think there have been some significant developments, uh, particularly the immigration bill, which I think is very, very strong. The energy bill, very strong, which passed through the House. It's not going to pass through the Senate right now, but at least we could get those done and insist on pieces of those if if there is a trade to be had uh, with the other side of the aisle. So that is something to focus on, is, is how can we make the most that we can out of finally having at least one lever of, of government that, that we control. And then I'd go back to you know the, the idea of making sure we use that to show what a conservative agenda would be and and stand strong on the spending. And I think that's where, you know, getting a speaker elected is so critically important and getting after these these funding vehicles because we have a, a real bad situation, you know, fiscally because of this president's just unbelievable reckless spending. And I'm no fan of deficits and I think there's bipartisan blame to go around on the deficits that we're carrying, but the spending over the last two and a half years has been so eye-wateringly reckless and profligate that now we're in, in this horrible situation where, you know, and this is this is part of where the debate in Washington over Ukraine, where everybody likes to go after the Heritage Foundation as being isolationist, I think comes into play because, you know, the, the traditional foreign policy Republican hawks uh, you know, come to me with tears in my eyes. Why can't I understand that it's 1939 and, you know, we have to prevent World War III? Well, I am all about preventing World War III, but we're not in 1939. We're in 1947 when we had committed to one of the most massive uh, military buildups in human history and won a world war on two massive theaters uh, at, at enormous cost. And we were at the GDP to debt rate then that we're at now. And, the, you know, we're hearing from the Wharton School that this is maybe sustainable for the next 20 years. But if we don't start turning the, bat the battleship now, we're going to default in 20 years, which is our children's time frame. And so if we can't get after the spending problem now and make these people understand this is a national security problem. You know, if we do face this triple nightmare scenario next year, you know, I am not in the fiscal position to do what we did uh, after Pearl Harbor and commit, you know, a very significant part of our natural natural national resources because we've already committed them to these debts that have brought us precious little prosperity. It's brought us hideous inflation instead and, and, and a real lowering of the American standard of, of living. So I think you know, understanding that these problems are connected and that, yeah, $100 billion isn't going to make or break the budget, but we aren't in a position right now to spend that kind of money because it feels good, because we wish the president would spend it in a certain way, which he will not. Uh, you know, we have to say, if, if you're not going to spend this responsibly and get us to a desirable outcome, well, guess what? We're going to cut it off. Well, what is the desirable outcome? That's the other thing I can't quite get my arms around with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, what are we, what is Biden driving towards and how, what does Victoria Coates think, how do you think this could end? I mean, is it realistic to say that Putin's going to say, oh, you're, thanks, I, I, sorry, I did make a mistake. Let me go back to the borders that existed three years ago. Um, does Putin collapse? Does he shoot himself in the head? Or or what? The Russians is... are very accident prone these days, Joe. Yeah. Well, they've always been. They've always been. But I just, I haven't heard an articulation of victory. 
what does the Biden administration have a contemplation of it or and do you like how can you see this possibly ending without a uh, nuclear conflict on the uh, on the uh, European continent? Well, and, and no, to I mean, they, obviously the administration doesn't confide in me, but they're not confiding in the American people about, you know, what what's the goal here? They're, they're very fond of saying as much as it takes, as long as it takes, which sounds to me like an undated blank check from the United States Treasury, uh, not a strategy. And so, you know, I've been saying, you know, I've been talking about Ukraine for 10 years now. I really don't want to talk about it for another 10 years. Uh, it could be an extremely valuable partner to the United States. I would like to see it become one. I don't like Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I what I would be trying to do if I were in the position to do so is put enormous pressure on him economically so that he would be concerned about internal reprisals and collapse and, you know, be very targeted and strategic in what we give the Ukrainians so that they can hold what he really cares about at risk, which are the seaports on Crimea, uh, and, and say, go after those, which is actually against the advice of the Biden administration, what they are trying, from what I read in the Washington Post, at least, what they are, what the Ukrainians are trying to do. The, the, uh, the Biden folk are asking them to do some different things in the west of the country, which that makes no sense to me. But you would you would put Putin in a position where you could say, all right, we are going to have to get to some kind of negotiated solution. We all understand that. But make it very clear you're coming in in the weakened position. You're the one who's going to have to make significant concessions and you know, get out of this in a way that he thinks, wow, that was really not all that I was promised it would be. Uh, and maybe I won't take a bite out of Poland because uh, that could potentially have been worse. That would be a desirable outcome for me. A Putin who is is chastened is not going to do this again, and hopefully has lost a lot of his luster at home. But that's you know that's really a question for the Russian people. But I've not heard anything even remotely like that uh, out of either the Biden administration or, quite frankly, a lot of my my colleagues in in Washington uh, who who are very much in the give more, better, faster camp. And regardless of whether you could you can make the Biden people do that, and then you know Putin has to be completely defeated and driven back, you know, into the the 20, uh, 2012 borders, the pre-Crimea borders, and you know, as much as I might like to have that happen, I, I don't, I just don't think it's practical. And if 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 we make that our only end state, then we're gonna fight to the last Ukrainian, and then I'm not quite sure what comes next. Well, thanks for that explanation, Victoria, and as well, this conversation. Before we go, though, uh, one of the worst kept secrets in Washington, D.C., is your strong support for the Phillies. And I'm wondering if you've got a moment to talk with us a little bit about your appreciation of the team. Obviously, they got some great stars there. Bryce Harper, they're in the midst of a huge playoff run kind of what you think about one of the premier baseball teams in the country. Well, I, I have another hour. So. <laughs> oh, suddenly. All right. For yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. For this. Oh, yeah. I could talk about this all day. No, I'm a, a lifelong uh, resident of both Lancaster and Philadelphia. So this is this has been a passion for more years than I care to admit and is now a, a shared passion with my, my son who grew up with the nickname Pocket Utley. <laughs> and was a very fine uh, baseball player in in high school, and uh, is not very pocket sized anymore. He was the varsity cat, cap, uh, catcher for Blair Academy for four years, so he's quite large. And so it's something we share together. Uh, it's something we shared with my father, and I also share with my brother. So we've been through some real lean times, a couple of very happy times, and this is this is a special team. Uh, you know, I think the way. You know, David Montgomery has constructed them the way Rob Thompson is managing them. You know, it's it's really it's it. And I haven't really seen this before. A team deliberately built for October. And, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing during the season. They did better this year than last year. They were in the first wild card spot. But, oh, my gosh, Atlanta looked invincible. The Dodgers looked invincible. You know, with hundreds of games, you know, 100 games, no, not hundreds, uh, winning that kind of of season-long schedule, but it just seems like the Phillies have come into the playoffs with a lot more pop. And, you know, 
Arizona is is also a very fine team. Also came in with a lot of pop, but you know I think the Phillies' depth and experience really showed in the first in the first two games. And the other thing that showed is our rabid, slobbering fan base, which is united as one to support this team. And you know I've heard from the fans from from the other teams that that it's like three hours of hell to be there, and we do everything we can to make it so. So we're very excited. Uh, going to go out to Arizona, start to play tomorrow night. We'll see what brand of Texan is going to, you know, come to town after they finish their series. Uh, so I'll be be trading a lot of trash talk with both Congressman Roy and, and Senator Cruz over that topic. Uh, so watch watch a Twitter feed near you for that exciting entertainment. But it really it's a wonderful thing, and in, in these dark days, you know, brings a lot of joy as America's pastime should. Well, I appreciate that very much. And any prediction? Uh, I think, you know, I I am I am starting to imagine us marching down Broad Street in a World Series parade. There we go. Yeah, absolutely. You heard it here, right, Victoria? You have to come back uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we got to talk. We got to spend an hour to just talk about your experience with Rumsfeld and what you learned on that enterprise. Um, we are also, uh, you know, a 501c3 uh, funded operation. So, but we share a, uh, a love of anybody talking about um, the national debt and our deficits. And that conversation is another one I'd love to have you back and have more of a discussion about. Um, but between the baseball, the debts and Don Rumsfeld, we'd have a lot to talk about in the future. And it's, you know, Hopefully we won't have too many more conflagrations overseas that we have to bring you back for, but uh, this is a great conversation and, and thank you so much for coming. Absolutely a pleasure. Don't forget about the Eagles. <laughs> there we go. Yet another hour on top of it all. Thanks, Victoria. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. For DCEKG, this is Eric Ulan along with our host, Joe Grogan. Thanks to our great guest, Victoria Coates of the Heritage Foundation. DCEKG, produced by Big Wig Media in partnership with our distributor, Evergreen, and Riverside, our executive producer, John Sportaki, and our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, www.survivorsforsolutions.org. Thanks so much for listening along. DCEKG can be found wherever great podcasts are discovered. Please follow along, click, listen, and subscribe. Thanks so much. We'll be talking.